Um, I don't know about you, uh, but because it's probably because it's Memorial Day weekend, I've been thinking about a kind of a playlist of movies. Uh, I grew up in a, in a household with my dad and grandfather around Memorial Day. This would, this would be one of those times we'd watch old war movies. Typically, everyone that had, uh, anyone that had John Wayne in it, we watched numerous times. Um, but probably the movie that had a profound impact on me was not a John Wayne movie. It was uh, one that really kind of helped capture and frame and, and, and really kind of plant the seed of deep admiration and appreciation for those veterans who, pray, who, played, uh, who paid the last full measure of devotion, gave their lives for freedom. And that's the movie Saving Private Ryan. And if you're familiar with that movie, Saving Private Ryan, uh, you might remember this scene. It's towards the end of the movie. Tom Hanks's character had led a group of soldiers to find Private Ryan and basically get him to safety and get him home. That's what the whole movie is about. And at this point in the movie, many of the soldiers who were part of that expedition, they had lost their lives. Tom Hanks's character knows he's not going to make it. And so in the final moments of his life with his final breath, he pulls Private Ryan close. Do you remember the words that he said? He said, earn this. And if you're familiar with the movie, you know those words. They hung on him like clunky chains, weighing him down for the rest of his life. The movie cuts to this scene and you see Ryan, a much older man. He's standing at the graveside of the man who said those words to him, earned this. And with a sense of kind of desperately needing to be reassured, he says to his wife, tell me I'm a good man. And what was intended to be a gift, saving his life, felt like a curse because it came with the price tag of having to earn it, having to prove that he was worth the sacrifice. That is a way to live. And there are a lot of people who probably live their lives having, feeling like they have something to earn, feeling like they have to prove themselves. And whatever is the best way to think about that approach to life, whatever is the best way to talk about it, can we acknowledge at the outset this morning that that approach to life is a million miles away from what the gospel is? Jesus once said this, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The, the teaching of Jesus, that's his yoke, what, what he has to offer us, that's what his yoke represents. It is not a burden. The life that Jesus gives the way of life that Jesus gives is not a burden and you don't have anything to prove. And I don't know if you've thought about it this way before, but the motivation of earning, the motivation of having to prove ourselves is hostile to the motivation of love. Earning and proving ourselves turns us inward. Love turns us outward. Or think about this. If I engage you in, in all the things that I do, if it's all about if I'm motivated by proving myself, am I mo more interested in self or others? Self. But if I'm motivated by love and all the things that I do and all the ways that I interact with you, if it's about love, am I most interested in self or others? It's others. And one of the most profound examples, one of the most profound stories that I've ever come across of someone transitioning from a life of earn it and prove it to a life motivated by love 
is a guy that we know as the Apostle Paul. I mean, it is a stunning story of a man who could be totally brand new, a, just a new person because of trusting and following Jesus. He ended up writing a bunch of letters to, to Christians and to churches. And in one of the letters that he wrote to a church, probably full of people, a lot like you and me, he summarized the words of Jesus like this. In Galatians chapter 5, he said, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. To which I just want to say, wow! I mean, wow, would you let the force and the power of that hit you? What is the only thing that counts? Faith expressing itself through love. That's all that counts. Nothing else counts for you. Nothing else counts against you. And this is a constant theme, a common theme through Paul's letters that he wrote to Christians and, and to churches. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to earn if you are in Christ. And this is what it means to be in Christ, to put all your hope in him. To trust in Jesus as the only hope of our salvation, as the leader of our life. And anybody who does that, you are fully loved, fully forgiven, fully accepted, fully delighted in by God. You have nothing to earn, nothing to prove. And so we get to spend the rest of our lives just expressing love to Jesus and love to people. And this is important because Jesus is our authority. He is the one who defines what love means and what it looks like. Nothing to earn, nothing to prove, just love. Does that sound good? Sounds real good. Now, do I sound like a crazy man to you if I say, sometimes I still feel like I have to prove myself? That there are times that I feel like I have to prove that I'm a good enough Christian. And what I'm going to say next, it's not a reflection of you. It's not about you. What I'm going to say next is a response to what I think is in the air in American Christianity, what I think is just kind of in the air in American church culture, and I'm zooming out, I'm going big picture. Sometimes, sometimes I feel like if I don't say the right words in the right way at the right time, I'm going to be judged and labeled by other Christians. If I don't say the right words in the right way at the right time, there's going to be some other Christians who judge me and label me as being some version of not a good enough Christian. Can anybody else relate to that? Anybody else feel that sometimes? And one of the ways, probably one of the most common ways that this comes out is whenever there's a hot topic that comes up. And when a hot topic comes up, it's like, you got to show I'm good enough. And these are some of the hot topics that I'm talking about. Political parties and candidates, racism, immigration, police, school boards, LGBTQ plus issues, boycotts, mass shootings and gun rights, abortion, gender identity. And when these topics come up, if we, whenever these topics come up, if we're responding, if we feel like we have to prove that we're good enough, smart enough, biblical enough, woke enough, not woke enough, conservative enough, liberal enough, whatever enough, we're not engaging with love. We're using these topics. We're engaging these topics to serve ourselves instead of serving the well-being of others. Are you with me? If when these topics come up, if we feel like we have to prove ourselves, 
that we have to prove that we're biblical enough, smart enough, good enough, conservative enough, liberal enough, whatever enough. It's not love that's motivating us. We're serving ourselves. We're using these topics to serve ourselves, not to serve the well-being of others. There's a lot of faith and love to demonstrate. But there's nothing to prove. And there's nothing to earn. Every church has to figure out what kind of relationship it wants to have with people. Every church has to figure out what kind of relationship it wants to have with its community. If we zoom out, every church has to figure out what kind of relationship it wants to have with the culture that it's in. And our church does too. And so if we're going to think about what kind of relationship we want to have, it would be helpful to know what the options are. And there are probably more options than I'm going to list on the screen, but I'm going to list three that I think are the most popular right now. When it comes to church engaging in culture, we can retreat from it, conquer it, or engage it. Retreat from culture, conquer culture, or engage with culture. I'm just not sure how to love people while hiding from them. I'm not sure how to love people while trying to fight them. I'm pretty sure, actually I'm pretty confident, that you can massively disagree with people and lovingly engage them. Recently, I was given an opportunity to do that in, in a small way. This is a picture of Dan, of my new friend, Dan Fifield and me up on Capitol Hill a couple of weeks ago. Dan is the founder and the director of The Landing here in town, which is an outreach organization uh, for homeless in our community. They're doing great work. And I'm not like mad or trying to look tough. The sun was in my eyes. Um, <laughs> And so we were there on Capitol Hill because we were invited by a representative from the National Association of Evangelicals to come and meet with a Democratic senator and a Republican congressman to talk about the farm bill and advocating for financial protections for the rural poor and those with food insecurity. So we're happy to do that. Uh, there were about four of us, and we met in the room with Senator Amy, Amy Klobuchar. She was fantastic. Um, there's about four of us. We met in a room together with Congressman, uh, Republican Congressman Brad Finstad. He was fantastic. And in these meetings, we talked about the farm bill. We talked about the budget. We talked about the debt ceiling. It was kind of surreal. Um, I invited them both to come to service at Autumn Ridge next time they're in town. So be nice. Um, <laughs> and my one saving grace, the thing that kept me from being totally out of place in that room and in those conversations was that I could talk about you. And I could talk about our church. I could talk about what this congregation does to lovingly engage this community with generosity. And this church has been doing it for years, long before I ever got here. It's actually one of the, this is one of the things about this church that motivated my wife and me to want to move our family here and be a part of Autumn Ridge because faith Expressing itself through love is a big deal. You never know how God is going to use that. You never know how God is using the story of you, even in Washington, D.C. And this is how Jesus wants his church to engage all people. This is how Jesus wants his church to engage all cultures, faith, expressing itself through love. And so today I want to do something just a little bit, a little bit different. Um, we're going to look at three passages today, and I'm not going to put these passages up on the screen. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to take out your Bible and just look at it. If, you like to, if you're more digital and you want to look at it on your phone, do that. You can grab a Bible from the seat back uh, pocket in front of you. 
And the first one that we're going to go to is uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. And I need to let you know that I'm going to annoy you today. I'm going to do a couple of things that are going to get on your nerves. Um, so can I, will you guys just give me a little uh, umbrella of grace? Can I have an umbrella of grace? I see some of you guys are giving me grace. A lot of you guys are not giving me grace. It's okay. I love you too. Um, and so this is how I'm going to get on your nerves. One, you're just going to say, Rick, you're covering too much material. You're probably right. And the other is you're going to say, Rick, you're not giving me time to write down the notes from the screen that I want to write down. You're probably right about that too. I apologize. Um, but what I want this to feel like is if we're just a couple of people hanging out, just looking at the Bible together and how it tells us, how it shows us to be people of faith that's expressed through love. And I think if we can stitch these three chapters together, that it'll give us a framework. It's going to give us a framework of how to engage hot topics with cool heads. First Corinthians chapter eight, I'm going to start in verse one. Paul says this, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Right at the start, he's not saying that knowledge is bad, but he's saying people who think they know a lot tend to be arrogant, so we got to be careful about that. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So this is the hot topic that Christians are debating in Corinth. Is it okay to eat food that sacrifice to idols. And what we need to know is in the city of Corinth, they had temples and places of idol worship like we have quick trip gas stations. They're just everywhere. And when people would go to these pagan temples, these places of idol worship, there would be meat sacrificed to an idol or food that was dedicated to an idol. And then they would all just hang out and eat together. Um, and people were debating, Christians were debating, are you allowed to join in in eating that food? And if you join in in eating food that was dedicated to an idol, are you a good enough Christian? And notice in this debate, what is the thing that Paul makes most important? It's love. It's not that knowledge isn't important. He's not downplaying knowledge. He's upplaying love. And who knows you is more important than what you know. If you are known by God and loved by God, that is far more important. And if you're reciprocating that love back to God and to other people, that's far more important. So he continues, verse 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many uh, gods and lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. What is he saying? There are some weak Christians. There are some immature Christians who believe something about idolatry is real. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Chapter 10, he's going to go into this a little bit more and deeper. But right now, this is what we got to get. On one hand, Paul is saying, all of this idle stuff, none of it's real. It's all fake. 
Now, this is where we have to be really good thinkers and really good listeners. Yes, there are temples. Yes, there are statues. Yes, there are ceremonies related to idol worship. And people have real experiences with that. But the framework of belief that's driving it all, the framework of belief that it's all built on is fake. It's false. It's not true. It's not real. And so if you eat food that's dedicated to something that's not real, it has no impact on you whatsoever, you're fine. If you eat food that's dedicated to something that's not real, it has no impact on your standing with God. But verse 9, he says, be careful, however. Be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? The first thing that I notice here, it seems like there are Christians in Corinth hanging out in pagan temples having lunch. And Jesus' followers are eating there. And Paul has already made clear, it's not real, it has no impact on you. So why be careful? He answers that in verse 11. So that this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. Spoken like a man who's never been to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> but in all seriousness, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to sin... I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Now, too many people have read this passage and wrongly concluded that it means that if there's something that you're allowed to do, but there's a Christian who's offended by it, don't do it. And growing up, I was taught drinking alcohol is technically not a sin, but if another Christian thinks it's wrong for you to do it, don't do it. That is not what this means. So we need to ask ourselves, what is the difference? What is the difference between a weak believer and a mature believer? What is Paul talking about here? And the answer is this. A weak believer doesn't participate in eating food that was dedicated to an idol because that weak believer thinks idolatry is real. A mature believer can participate and eating food that was dedicated to an idol because he knows idolatry isn't real. This person is judging this person. Who's doing the judging, the weak Christian or the mature Christian? The weak one. And Paul is saying, listen, for those of you here, you're mature. Use your freedom not to be self-interested, but to look out for this person. Because if this person right here, they believe idolatry is real. If they follow your example, then they're trying to follow Jesus and they think they're also worshiping a false God and their heart is divided. They have divided loyalty or divided allegiance to Jesus. And so those of you who are mature, use your freedom to say no to yourself so that you can protect the vulnerability of a weaker brother or sister in Christ. And eating the food's not wrong. But protect them because they're weak. And I think the Apostle Paul is, is leading us something very profound. If we turn over to 
1 Corinthians chapter 10, two chapters over, verse 31, he's ending this conversation. He says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Worship cannot be reduced to music. Yes, we're worshiping when we sing, but all of our lives should be worship. So whether you eat or drink, do whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good. A mature believer is someone who's not looking out for their own good. They are looking out for the good of others. I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. If I can take this complicated conversation that Paul is having and try to summarize it like this, I'd say I'll use my freedom with the intent of not leading weaker believers away from Jesus while trying to lead non-believers to Jesus. I'm going to use my freedom to not, with the intent of not leading weak believers away from Jesus and also using my freedom with the intent of trying to lead non-believers to Jesus. Now, if you think that is easy, raise your hand. Nobody thinks that's easy because it's not. You don't get to that kind of life with rules. You can't reduce it to rules. Living this way requires an ongoing commitment to love as Jesus defines it. And an ongoing commitment to wisdom as God's word defines it. Let's look at another passage. Let's look at Acts chapter 17. So we're going to flip back a couple of books and go past Romans to Acts. We're going to pick up in Acts chapter 17 verse 16. Before we read, I'm just going to ask you to remember, idolatry is not real, it's fake, it's not true. Be, be mindful of that, be thinking about that as we read this. Paul's waiting for a group of people to join him in Athens. It says, while he was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. This is where we see Paul's heart. He shows up in Athens. He's not surprised to see a bunch of uh, temples and idolatry. He knew he was going to see that. He's not angry at people. His heart is heavy. His heart is broken for people who have built their lives on a framework of belief that's not true. And the reason that breaks his heart is because Paul knows every lie comes with a price tag. And all of these people who are engaging in idolatry, he's not angry at them. He doesn't see them as enemies. He sees them as future friends. He sees them as future brothers and sisters in Christ. So what does he do? Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. We shouldn't see the word debate as negative. That's a very positive thing in that culture. They're having thick, great conversations about Jesus. So he goes to a place where religious people are who believe in the Old Testament. He's got common ground with them, and he's reasoning with them about Jesus. He goes to the marketplace where he doesn't have any religious common ground with anybody, people who are far more secular, and he's trying to reason with them about Jesus. And what we see, Paul, at the same time, is a guy who could speak to believers and speak to skeptics about Jesus all at once. How did they respond? Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? I hope you don't feel that way right now. <laughs> what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. 
They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. This is a picture of what the Areopagus looks like today. It was up on a hill. It was a place where there were some temples, a place of learning and debating. They said to him, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. If social media was a place back then, it's this. If cable news was a place back then, it was the Areopagus. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I see you guys are super religious, and you're trying to cover all of your bases, and you recognize there are things that you don't know about. I want to talk to you about the thing that you don't know about. And so I want to pause and just make an observation about Paul. Paul engaged them on their turf and with their terms. He engaged them on their turf and with their terms. He started off being respectful. I see you're very religious. He wanted to be respectful wherever he could be respectful. He found a way to honor people, even people who he massively disagreed with. These are people who are building their lives on something he is convinced is not real. And yet he's respectful where he can be respectful. He's engaging seriously and he's honoring them at every point that he can be honoring. And from this point, he begins to preach the gospel, to share it honestly and clearly. In verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. God has been intentionally working throughout history with people, wanting them to turn to him. And then he says this, God is not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And notice he says next, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So let me pause. I'm going to make a couple of more observations. My first one is this. Paul had a soft heart, not soft theology. He had a soft heart for people. But it did not cause him to back down an inch on what it is about the truth of God. The second thing I want us to notice about Paul is that Paul didn't just take time to know what they believed. He took time to understand it. He was able to quote their own thought leaders to them while he talked about Jesus. He took the time to understand people who saw the world and who understood God very differently than him. And I want to make a suggestion. I want to suggest that if we can't, when we're having conversations with people, if we can't talk about what they believe in a way that makes them feel understood, if we can't talk to them about what they believe in a way that would cause them to go, oh yeah, you totally get me, you know where I'm coming from, we're not ready yet to try and get them to understand what we believe. 
We're certainly not ready to make any sort of demands that they understand us. This is what love does. Love goes to where people are. Love pushes us to understand people and to take whatever time is necessary to understand them. Love does not mean you got to agree. And love certainly does not mean that we affirm people when we believe they have error. Love means taking the time to listen and understand. And that's what Paul did. So that he could win trust and share the gospel. Who are you more likely to trust? The person who takes the time to understand you or somebody who misunderstands you? We trust the people who take time to understand us. Verse 29, Paul continues. Remember, he just quoted their own thought leader. He says, your own poet has said this. We are God's offspring. Therefore, verse 29, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. What does he do? He doesn't believe idolatry is real. He takes the false framework of belief and he takes pieces of that belief to show how it undermines their own belief. He takes what they believe to show how what they believe can't be true, how it contradicts itself. Paul is an incredible example of this, that there is something inside of every false belief system that points to what is true. And if we love people enough to take time enough to understand what it is they think and what they believe because we care about them and because we've taken the time to understand, we'll see what that thing is inside the false belief system that's actually pointing to truth. Over my years of being a pastor, plenty of times people have said this to me, Rick, you don't have any right to tell somebody else that their beliefs about sexuality is wrong. Rick, you don't have any right to tell somebody that their sexual lifestyle is wrong. You can't do that. To which I like to respond, you may be right. You may be right. But if you are right that it's wrong for me to say that they're wrong, then it's also wrong for you to tell me that I'm wrong. And that's not like some sort of battle of wits. This is what I say. I'm not like not trying to score cheap points. But I say, isn't it true? Doesn't this point to that we're both coming from a vantage point that there's something about sexual ethics and what it means to be human that's bigger than our opinions? That it's not based on what we think. There's something about sexual ethics. There's something about what it means to be human that transcends all people and people's opinions. And it's our responsibility to then know what that is and where it comes from. There's something inside of every false belief system that points to what's true. Let's keep reading. In verse 30, the Apostle Paul continues. He says, in the past... God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this, to everyone, by raising him from the dead. Our faith hinges on and is built on the historical reality of Jesus physically, literally rising from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Some of them were skeptics. Some of them were curious. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. 
Some of the people laughed him off. Some of the people said, I don't totally understand this, but I want to hear more. And some of those people became devoted followers of Jesus. A couple of them probably became leaders and well-known people in the church. I think that's why Dionysius and Damaris were mentioned here. Paul clearly was committed to convincing people. He wanted people to be convinced of Jesus. That's why he invested himself. That's why he reasoned with them. But Paul understood, can't control people. And he certainly wasn't trying to conquer people. He did want to convince people, but I think we look at the life of Paul, we see there's a man who understood, there's a man who understood this. Let me, let me put it this way. It's not my job to convince you. It is my job to share what convinced me. I want to be convincing, but I can't force you to be convinced. I can't force you to think what you think. I can't force you to believe what you believe. That's above my pay grade. That's between you and God. It's not my job to convince you. It is my job to share with you what convinced me. And if I do that, and if you do that, if we do that, I think we can trust that God is going to use that for people's good. You guys got time for one more passage? All right, let's flip over to Acts 21. Acts 21, verses 10 through 14. And before I read this very brief passage, let me give you some background. Paul has been traveling with a group of friends and other believers. He's trying to get to Jerusalem. He's not there yet. At this point, he's in a town called Caesarea, and he's at the house of a man named Philip. All of the companions there, all the people who are with Paul, none of them want him to go to Jerusalem because they're afraid for him. They're afraid he's going to get hurt. Some of them are afraid he's going to be killed. So that's what's going on when we read uh, what Luke wrote in Acts 21. After we had been there in Caesarea a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down to Judea. And coming over to us, he took Paul's belt. He tied his own hands and feet with it. And he said, the Holy Spirit says... And this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready to not only be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded. Another way to talk about that is when he would not be talked out of this, we gave up and we said the Lord's will be done. Paul understood what it meant to be radically and sacrificially loved by Jesus. And it turned him into a man who wanted to radically and sacrificially love all other people. And he was so committed to loving even the ones who hated him, he was willing to face extreme risk. He wouldn't be dissuaded. He wouldn't be talked out of it. And thinking about that, it prompted about three questions for me. Uh, these questions, I think, expose me, um, and I want to share these questions with you. What talks me out of loving others? What talks me out of being patient with others? 
What talks me out of enduring pain that others dish out so that I can share Jesus with them? So that I can be an example of the love of Jesus to them? Those are just some questions I'm thinking about as I read this. Paul did go to Jerusalem. And things went down just as the prophet Agabus said they would. He was attacked and arrested in Jerusalem. Uh, He would spend the rest of his life without freedom in somebody else's custody, Um, whether he was in prison or defending himself in court, being extradited to Rome along the way. There was a shipwreck, and that was pretty extreme. But for the rest of his life, he's in some form of custody, some form of house arrest, and it would all end with him being executed. And I guess I want to ask us this question. Do you know why that is important? Because we're here in a worship service together today, talking about Jesus together today. We've sung songs to Jesus today. And the reason we know about Jesus, the reason we know about the good news of the gospel is because there are people like Paul and there are many other men and women who would not be dissuaded They would not be talked out of expressing faith through love, even though it came at great cost to them. That's why we know the gospel today. So the question is, how do we take that baton from them and carry it forward? We could ask the question like this. How do we exercise faith and love while engaging our culture on hot topics. And on these three passages we looked at, there are six takeaways, six observations from the life of Paul. I'll run through them quickly. Number one, you gotta know the gospel. Second, we're gonna use our freedom in Christ to maximize our ability to love all. We're gonna engage people where they are Number four, we're going to take time to understand what they believe and why they believe it. After that, share the gospel honestly and clearly. And last, don't flinch. If doing this means that we take a hit, we take the hit and we don't hit back. And not because we're trying to prove anything. And not because we're trying to earn anything. There's just a lot of faith and a lot of love to express and demonstrate. And it is our privilege to join Jesus in making himself known to all people so that they can know his truth, his goodness, his beauty.